0: Hey, welcome to today's edition of the John Papaloni Show. Today, I have David McElwain. David, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. Wonderful to be here. So
0: I'd like to start off my podcast, usually the same way, which is basically a brief story of who you are, what you do and how you got there.
1: Well, uh, uh, who I am is a uh, retired or reformed golden handcuff wearer. And what that really means is that I went through a career experience where I was a corporate sales executive in a a publicly traded company working for a division of IACOM, made a ton of money and didn't know what to do with myself with that money. I was also miserable, hated my job. So I built a plan to start creating wealth outside of corporate America. And eventually I left that job and I went into real estate full time. From real estate full time, I recognized... A couple things. One, I left the job in corporate America at the conclusion of a merger, and so I was laid off through no fault of my own. I actually made budget for the upcoming quarter the day I was laid off, and I went through the kind of search in the wilderness. Ended up working for a private um, startup in the tech world as a CRO, turned in a Series B fundraising, reversed seven or eight consecutive quarters of revenue decline into positive revenue, came in after the Series B fundraising was there, ready to hire the 35 sales force that were in the plan, and I came to learn lo and behold i was laid off from that so real quickly in the course of about 20 months i lost two jobs that weren't performance related when i was actually outperforming the marketplace and my peers so i got into real estate as a result of this understanding that i had to be in control of my own destiny from there i became a, a real estate agent and a realtor and i opened a brokerage and from there i became a multifamily owner and operator and i'm currently a general partner in over a thousand doors. So I put together groups of investors and we go out and we buy multifamily syndications or other commercial real estate assets that are yielding positive cash flow and or uh, tax benefits and or equity multiples. So that's kind of the executive summary.
0: Got it. Got it. So that's actually interesting, right? I mean, sometimes uh, you know, bad things that happen in our uh, lives actually end up being positive outcomes. So, I mean, that's a that, that's a good thing. Uh, now, again, <laughs> real estate uh, you know agent and uh you went from a real estate agent to multifamily investor. Like, how did you come about that? Like, where where did you see the opportunity, right? Cuz most people go single family home, condos, multiple condos, stuff like that. Most people don't think to go to that level.
1: One of my gifts or burdens, depends on how you look at it, is that I have a big vision. So when I was selling advertising, my product was sold locally, regionally, and nationally. And what that really means is that I could sell one market, two markets, five markets, or 125 markets. And it was the same work to sell one market as it was to have a client buy three markets or to manage a client's contracts for 150 markets i actually happen to be really skilled at the larger sales and the bigger holistic view and where i made my bones in corporate america was selling very large complex multi-market deals so i'm at an investment seminar in denver where i live and i see somebody talking and he says something that hit me in about 10 seconds and that was why buy one and?" one door if you can buy a hundred. And from that, I realized that buying apartment complexes was for me, the use of the skill set that I had in corporate America. So buying one is the same as buying a hundred. There's just another zero. When I would sell one market, it was the same work as when I sold 125, there were just more zeros and there were just more lines on the spreadsheet. So for me, it was a natural transition. And I jumped at it. I do today still own my residential brokerage and I still enjoy helping people buy and sell houses and, and doing that home thing. I had a closing last week. I've got another closing this week and it's a good thing. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of clarity that I was able to see scale and from scale, I was able to see opportunity.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, interesting that you're able to see that that way. And it's like, and, and it kind of surprised me when you said you still had your brokerage mm-hmm. that uh, I wasn't expecting that.
1: <laughs> this is actually my brokerage logo right here. And, and so I'll do the little plug for Colorado Realty Experts.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, I, again, I still have my license too, and I'm starting to expand into the investment side of it as well now i'm going to guess that you're not doing this uh all by yourself like the whole investing thing right with mac assets and I'm, I'm guessing there's more than just yourself
1: well what i do is i put together teams as needed on the different individual asset i have an acquisition guy that i work with when we're looking to buy properties i have uh fellow partners and i bring together partners based on where the op- opportunity lies and on what we need in the partnership. So for example, I'm look, working right now on a deal we might do in Tacoma, Washington. So there's a couple of Seattle guys that are there. It's a possible condo. It's a possible building conversion from a um, class A office building in, into condos. So there's an architect we're gonna put on the team. There's a guy who's done these conversions before out in Manhattan we're gonna put on the team. We're gonna bring it, We we bring in experts based on what we need for that project. Uh, my deal in Kansas City, I've got different people on the team that have different skill sets and have operated properties in similar size and scope in similar markets and or that market. So I am a, a one man show, but I'm not because I don't do things alone. Team is crucial to this, you know, and that's one of the benefits of this is that I'm responsible for my investors' results, and I'm responsible for ensuring that MAC assets does the best things possible for the assets that we work with. So it's not a guaranteed 10-person team. Ultimately, uh, my goal is to have a 30- or 50-person company and to have all those people in on staff. But its I'm not there today. I'm only three years into this, four years into this. So, you know, there's a growing curve.
0: Absolutely. So you're, uh, which is pretty good, three, four years, and you're at a thousand doors. That's actually kind of impressive. <laughs> Thank you. Thank I- you. Which comes the next question is that where did the financing come from?
1: Well, every project's different, right? And so in the capital stack, the financing comes a couple of different ways. One of them is that my own money's in it. Uh, Two, the bank is always a crucial part of the capital stack and people ignore that. But financing is crucial. And one of the challenges that we've had in the last... 18 months is that the Federal interest, the Federal Reserve has changed the, the fund to funds rate in, in the US, and that has massively increased the cost of capital. So we actually have a, a lending arms, banks that are part of the capital stack. Then we raise private equity, and that private equity is where I come in, I bring out private equity, I put together a group of accredited and or sophisticated investors, and we buy into an LLC and that LLC purchases the apartment complex. So it's it's complicated, but it's not, right? I mean, if you think about it, when you buy a house, you bring the down payment and the bank brings the rest. When you buy a commercial asset, we bring the down payment and the bank brings the rest. It's, it, it's really that simple.
0: Getting into the, um, you get accredited investors involved, I mean, for the private funding, right? So I'm gonna guess that um, and this is the part that I've been a little confused and because I'm kind of exploring this avenue okay. as well. So I'm kind of, uh, trying to learn things here. Now to get the private funding, you don't really need a securities license. Well, correct?
1: everybody, every institution, every organization, every governmental agency has their own rules in the U S there's something called reg D, which the securities and exchange commission did. And then there's an exemption to that for a 506 B and 506 C offerings. And for a 506 B offering, you can be either accredited or sophisticated. An accredited investor is someone who has a net worth greater than a million dollars exclusive of their primary residence and or is licensed in securities trading and or has an annual household income of $200,000 or more for the last two years if single or $300,000 or more if married. Additionally, you have no foreseeing of that income decreasing. So, I'm not licensed because I operate under under Reg D and I do Series 506B and C offerings.
0: Got it, got it. So, uh yeah, this is one of the things I learned in my venture. I wanted to uh be able to get into uh well, here we have we call them uh rsps mm-hmm. but uh it'd be the equivalent to your 401Ks and stuff. And I wanted to be able to, you know, to get into that. So, I started the process, the corporation was built and stuff, and then um, then I, you know, went to look at the next step on how do I get into that? And that's when I learned about securities. And then that kind of flabbergasted me. Now I expected the securities for like, to be able to get people's pensions and stuff as an investment, right. Or, you know, retirement plans. I expected that, but then that, that's when I started into finding the restrictions even outside of that. So it was just sort of like, it blew me away. I mean, I never thought that getting people to lend money, you know, or to invest in something was going to be that big of a deal. So now when I see it, I kind of have that curiosity. And that's where that question came from.
1: Yeah, you know, Canadian investors actually can participate in the U.S. And I actually have a partner who raises capital out of Toronto. And he raises capital with high net worth Canadians. And they they bring their money into the U.S. And there are some rules around that. And I am by no means, I think, qualified to give knowledge on that. Other than I know it can be done. And I know people do it. And then there are ways to avoid the double taxation that's about the depth of my skill set.
0: Yeah, that was something that I was building. I have a uh, C Corp in the states as well as a regular corp here. It's separate entities, separate things, but there's I'm learning the you know the uh logistics of everything now. It's not as simple as I thought, but it is doable.
1: No, they're definitely different governmental organizations. They're definitely d- different governmental things. The interesting thing is that Canadian investors have a very different threshold for returns than American investors.
0: So that's interesting. I mean, yeah. Anyways, like I said, it's a learning thing for me right now. So it's not building as fast as I thought it would be. I thought I'd get into it and had people ready. Then I learned and you not ready for you. I can do my own, but I'm waiting before you- I'm ready for you.
1: <laughs> Nothing in business <laughs> happens as fast as we think it's going to happen.
0: Yeah, that's true. So that's another business, that's another lesson for anybody watching or listening that, uh, you know, whatever you think you're gonna do in three months, be prepared for it to be a year.
1: (laughs) And the converse of that is that if you're in a private equity or a uh, venture capital experience, and you're working for companies who are private equity guys, they ask you the question, what's your five-year plan? And you give them an answer. They tell you to do it in a year. Yeah. (laughs) so one of the lessons i learned working for some uh, guys that were billionaires was that if you think it's going to take a year try to get it done in three months if it's going to take five years work to get it done in a year and even though nothing happens as fast as you want it to Plan to make things happen faster than you anticipate.
0: Yeah, that's great advice.
1: It's kind of a different antithetical thought process, but it's true.
0: Hundred percent.
1: And so I try to operate my business in that way. Where if I have a five-year plan, I want to get it implemented in a year. If I miss that target, but I get implemented in fourteen months, I just saved thirty-eight months of implementation time. Yeah, you're
0: right. I like that. And that's another another common pattern that I'm noticing. Is that um successful people tend to not be in a like it's one of those things that they're patient but not patient at the same time.
1: Yeah, it's a conundrum, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's like it's like they can wait for things to happen, but they're go getters, action takers, they're pushing it.
1: Yes. And it's very frustrating because I'm in that mode right now where um I'm pushing, I'm pushing, I'm pushing, I'm pushing, I'm pushing. And the marketplace is not responding to me because <laughs> of the cost of capital. But there will be a point when the capital will change and the cost will change. And that's when there will be meteoric change.
0: Yeah. 100%. And you you brought up the, the best point there, right? Like nothing is forever, right? So what goes up will come down. What goes down, will come up. So interest rates, they're not really uh, in a good spot, but I don't expect them to last forever. And uh, you can take the uh, point of view of just curl up in a ball and hold, and uh, and uh, play victim, or you can find the opportunity, and then eventually, knowing that things will change, just like it went up, at some point in time, it'll come down, and there'll be some advantages there as well.
1: You know, I don't know that it's ever going to come down to where it was.
0: I don't think so, but I don't think it's going to last at seven percent either.
1: When I look at the horizon, I've experienced as an adult. Um, I entered the workforce in the early '90s, and at the time, the interest rates—a good interest rate—was below double digits. In 2001, when uh, the towers were struck and we entered into a 20-year war with terrorism, the stock market was closed for a week, and people don't remember this. And the fund of funds rate went—I think it was like four percent. I'm not—I'm not 100% positive on this, but. The concept is what's important It went from a fairly normal marketplace to zero. And when the fund of funds rate went to zero, it hasn't really climbed up substantially since then until now. So we were doing little ticks in the US and those little ticks have changed and it's gone. And yeah, we had the, the great recession of 08, but the reality is that I've got a mortgage at less than 3% for 30 years on my primary residence. What's going to compel me to sell that? And I think that's a really interesting thing is that as the marketplace changes, 60% of the U.S. has mortgages below, I'm sorry, 80% of the U.S., so eight out of 10 people have a mortgage of 6% or less currently on their primary residence. How do we unlock this? I don't know. And, and, And I think that we're in a really interesting time because all the rules of economics are really being tested and the theories are changing rapidly. We don't necessarily understand. I was on a call earlier with a peer of mine who owns a whole bunch of assets. And we're talking about the fact that we don't understand some of the economic functionality. For example, we're in a quote unquote, it feels like a recession, but we don't have job loss. And we actually have job gains and we have interest rates that are lessening, but they're still far, far more significant than we want them to be. These are unusual circumstances. And I think that things are going to go down, but not substantially. What I think is really going to change is the expectation of the seller. And the sales prices are going to have to decrease. Cap rates are going to have to increase and profit that people think they have on paper will not be realized when they start to really trade again so that's kind of my read
0: yeah yeah that actually makes sense i I kind of agree with you on that um anyways yeah like i kind of agree with you on that things are changing that way i do think we will see some sort of significant job loss in the future i really believe that um But again, with every uh, downside, there's an upside. So I also see that uh, there's going to be more opportunities that uh, people don't realize at the same time.
1: Yeah, where do you see the job loss coming from?
0: (sighs) Cost of, uh, like you said, cost of capital right now is higher. Um, Mm -hmm. People are spending less. When interest rates, uh, like when people who have interest rates under 6%, and in fact, there's a good chunk of people that have them under 4%, when those become Mm the 6.5%, then uh, people are gonna tighten up their belt and spend less. And as they spend less, that'll be more of that pullback. As there's more of that pullback, there'll be more layoffs as a-
1: So shrinkage in the, shrink, shrinkage in the consumer facing segments.
0: Correct, I, I personally think right now, I think right now this inflation talk is the new COVID. For all, for all intents and purposes, this inflation was caused by our governments, by their decisions during that lockdown. Now I'm not saying I have a better solution. I'm not saying there would have been something else they could have done. And I'm not saying there isn't. Um, but it's a lot of times, like there was a lot of uncharted territory, a lot of rash decisions to try to compensate for what was in front of them. And as a result, there's more money pumped into the system, which is really why we are where we are. So I think things could have yeah. been done a little different.
1: I don't know how to post more. I don't know how to post more than that because when I look back on it, um, I try to keep my politics out of my my business. Yeah, I I get that. And and I look at where are we and where are we going. So I don't care that the Fed in the U.S. pumped five trillion dollars into the economy from a political point of view, because what I care about is what is that doing to my business and to my investors. And I I don't try to lance at windmills. I'm not a politician. I'm not going to change politics. I don't think that I am intelligent enough to have a super detailed macroeconomic conversation on Keynesian versus Freudian versus X, Y, and Z. Uh, And obviously, Freud's not an economist. So therefore, you can tell right there that I'm speaking ill of it. Um, Yeah, I get that. But what what I do see is how does it affect people and what happens. So when I was a landlord during COVID, we did not have people failing to pay. When people came off of the subsidies, there was a probably 90 day rough water. What I learned in watching my residents respond was that they wanted to pay. 95% of them wanted to pay. 2% wanted to screw me and 3% wanted to manipulate the system. Right. And that's the way mankind is. If I really think about it, mankind, 95% good, 2% are rotten, 3% hate the man, whoever the man of the moment is. <laughs> and they're going to continue to hate the man of the moment. So I just kind of ignore it. To me, it's, it's, it's chatter. And it doesn't help advance my business or my investors responses, which is interesting because one of the things that I really want to do with my investors is I want to educate them to make the decision that works for them. I don't necessarily care if you invest with me or Bob or Sally or Tom. What I care about is that I give you information to make a good decision. So that's one of the reasons that I talk about, hey, here's the experience we had our residents didn't walk away a couple of them did and you know one of them i just saw the report today that were that that's this person's under the eviction status good they were trying to screw with us they worked the system we still got our money and over the course of that period of time there was some instability but that's part of operating any business so yeah covid was really challenging and people were really scared which, tells me another, which taught me some more lessons, which is that people get really scared really easily when they don't understand what's happening and there's not a known. So one of the things I always want to educate people on is how to face your fear.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Now, which brings up a point here. Um, now, is Colorado a landlord-friendly state?
1: Well, let's talk about what landlord-friendly means. You know, what is the definition of this? Does this mean that we can evict somebody immediately? Or does landlord-friendly mean that we have the right to seize our property back after something's not paid? Or does landlord-friendly mean that we don't have rent control? And is rent control good or bad? You know, people talk about this landlord-friendly, and I don't really know how to define it. I remember um, the answer to your question is perceptually, yes. Reality is that we are purple and blue. Right. And there's this hypothesis that if it's a blue state, it's not landlord friendly. That's a load. It's about the municipality more than it is the state. Got it. Eviction rules in the U.S. are governed by counties normally, not by states. States have some rules, but really the county does it. So in Michigan, where I used to operate property, it was viewed as landlord friendly. Neutral. I had to I had to take back and evict a tenant, and it took me a year and fifteen thousand dollars to unwind a a a uh, seller carry deed sale. So I would say that was unfriendly. In Colorado, I can evict you. I can I can post. And you can have three days to cure the problem. And if you don't cure the problem, I can have you out in about 30, depending on what the issue is. So is that beneficial? I don't know. Kansas is viewed as a landlord friendly state and it takes us 90 days to evict somebody. So Colorado is is definitely in the evolution. We just, um, the, the legislature is all Democrats and the, the governor's a Democrat. And one of the legislators put forth rent control and the governor vetoed. And so I know there are thought processes that are evolving and uh, there are some struggles with housing. One of the challenges that I see is it's there is no landlord-friendly versus unlandlord friendly in a macro. It really goes down to the micro. Got it. Yeah. I don't want to buy something in San Francisco, and I don't want to buy something in Seattle, and I don't want to buy something in LA. I might buy something in Modesto, California. I talked to a guy in Portland, and I did a podcast with him uh, on one of my podcasts, and Portland is viewed as this terribly rough, landlord-unfriendly position. But the reality is that he could evict in Portland faster than I could in Kansas City.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah. So perception is a reality, but it's often an incorrect reality. You know what I
0: mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, like I'm in Toronto. In Toronto, the, mm-hmm. um, the rules and regulations are horrendous. Um, now, with the interest rates going up, a lot of people are in negative cash flow position. And we're talking about like $800 to $1,000 loss per month. And with that being said, some buildings are under rent control. So they get the whopping two and a half percent and they continue losing money. The trend here in Toronto is a lot of investors are dumping their places and some people are holding back, going, Whoa, you know, let's see what's happening. You know, things are crazy. Other people are leaving Ontario and investing elsewhere, such as the Sunshine State, Florida. Yeah. Um, we have Calgary, that's uh, for if, if the ones that want to stay in Canada. That's what I call landlord friendly, which is, and here's my version of it and my problem. And this is my problem with Toronto. It is not so much like, don't get me wrong, I'm not one of those landlord guys that wants there and say, you know, screw the tenant and throw them on the street. No, that's not what I'm talking right. about. You know, I mean, I believe in being fair. I believe in doing what's right. And I think most people, like you said, 95% want to do what's right and fair. I just also don't believe that it should take 18 months of the landlord not getting paid to be able to evict someone or do something about they're
1: 110 uh, agree that is horrific because the reality is that people forget this you, you get into these 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 battles what do i what's my service i have two or three different services i provide number one to the investor i provide a risk-adjusted return for their capital that's huge yes to the resident i provide a safe inclusive functioning place to live to the government, I actually help provide stable housing for their populace. These are things that people need to remember. Now, in exchange for that, do I make a living? Yes. So I think there's a balance in there, And, and I hate the idea of rent control. Intrinsically, what that means is that someone's guaranteed to live below the marketplace values. Yes. And if they're living below the marketplace values, why are they still living there? Maybe this is what migration's all about, right? If you think back to where migration started in the U.S. in the turn of the uh, turn of the uh, you know the mid 1800s, people were migrating away from the cities to where they could find employment and housing and opportunity. And the same thing happens today, but now our our migration trends really go more to lifestyle choices. And is that is that what we need? I don't know, but yeah, rent control horrific in my opinion
0: yeah i agree with you on that
1: it's actually negatively impacting the cities it when denver was doing this I, i got educated on it real fast and um it actually reduces housing because capital flees the market and as capital flees the market like you're talking about in toronto there's less building there's less transactions which means there's less units being put to the marketplace and it inherently hurts the economy.
0: I agree, I agree, exactly. So, with that being said, now, what was like doing this, right, like you, you got into this, you, you found, I like the go big mentality, and you figured that out mm-hmm. pretty quickly, probably quicker mm-hmm. than the average person would,
1: so. And I learned a lot of painful lessons along the way, so let's make everybody perfectly clear. It is not a path of simplicity. It's, it, it can be painful, and it's not easy. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, and that's what I was going to get into, right? I was going to say, what were some of the challenges you found?
1: Well, when I talk about adding another zero, it's true. You add another zero, but you have to be able to handle the complexities that occur. So when you buy one or two single families, you, you don't typically offset that one or two family properties with a professional property management company. The tax implications are much different. You don't do tax objections for one or two houses with a professional firm you don't hire a CPA firm to deal with the books. When you're buying one or two single family rentals, or you're doing the burr method, and, and you're doing it basically by yourself or with a, with, a, with a partner, you're not operating multiple businesses. When I buy an apartment complex, I'm buying two things. I'm buying the real property, which in and of itself has its own challenges. And then I'm buying a business. And usually I'm buying a business that is performing its subpar results. And because it's performing at subpar results, I have to operate that business to get to optimum performance. So those are some of the challenges. Learning how the levers function that create better results than the previous operator. Understanding what asset management is versus is not versus what property management is versus what it is not. Understanding the rules and regulations of any municipality you operate in understanding what the residents want, providing product that is relevant to the market. So there's a whole lot more hats that are involved. And that's why there are usually many more members in an association like this than a single uh, buy and hold or a flipper. A flipper might know a market that's three miles by three miles or maybe five miles by five miles. And in multifamily, it's a very different set of trading radiuses.
0: Makes total sense. I like that. And yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it, it is uh, multiple hats, a lot of uh, a lot more to think about. And you know what? <laughs> I would imagine that uh, it's like you said, a flipper or someone has one or two properties will manage it themselves. Where uh, you got multifamily, there's no way that you can manage that yourself. Your phone wouldn't stop ringing. And not for positive well, things. <laughs>
1: y- yes and no, right? So as an owner, I don't touch the day-to-day operation of the business. Just think about a CEO for a second. A CEO operates with a team and everybody has their lane. And as an owner, my lane is to make sure that the team is operating at, optim- at oper- optimal performance. So self-management is not a problem if you have the right team. Because that's Bob's job not David's. Right. <laughs> and Bob calls David and says, Hey, our turnover this month is three, our, our available inventory is six, our uh, loss to lease right now is X. And uh, there's a reporting mechanism. So that's the business hat that I love to wear, which is very different than the real estate hat. The real estate hat is about valuing an asset. And operate an asset in the transactional parts of the marketplace. The business operations had is about maximizing performance.
0: Got it. With now, in terms of like when you get when you find a new project and you need to raise money, how, mm-hmm. like how did you begin raising money? That's where I'm trying to get at. I mean, like now I'm sure you have a uh, database, right? But you had to start yeah. somewhere.
1: Well, part of that, you know, I operate a podcast called Break Your Golden Handcuffs. Uh, I have a. Large following on LinkedIn of over a thousand people. I have a network of thirty years of corporate life, so I transitioned all of that. I also put out a newsletter, um, and it's not easy. You got a network; uh, it's like any other sales game. You got to be in front of people to get to help them find the solution. I, I wrote a book: "How uh, Ugly Apartments Deliver Beautiful Returns." That's available on my website. So I, I do all of those things that you see talked about in educational circles to generate opportunity for investors to find out to discover me i've also got a youtube channel so i do a lot of social media stuff
0: got it got it so now, but social media is kind of well. I guess you've been doing it for six years, so social media was around from the beginning. Yeah, so that makes sense. Okay, yeah, and you're right. That you're, you've also illustrated the importance of a database throughout uh, your career, and you know maintaining relationships, which is important as well.
1: Yeah, you know, I had a, to give you an illustration of this. I had a client that used to be a ra- uh, when I was selling radio for Viacom. I had a client that I met when she was in her 40s. She's now in her 70s, and She's been a client off and on in various products for 30 years. I worked for a billionaire that taught me friends don't fire friends. You make friends, you build relationships, you create deep connections with human beings and that's how you raise capital. And you never overpromise.
0: Yeah. You overdeliver. Love that. So I agree with you on that. Now, where do you see your future like like with everything that's going on, obviously cost of capital is a huge thing, but I still believe there's opportunities. Now, again, look, a lot of times people are going to say, okay, everything costs too much. But I believe that uh, instead of making 7%, maybe you make 4%, but there's still profit. There's still ability. There's still options out there. And I believe that a lot of times the importance is on the buy more than on the sell.
1: Well, yeah. Obviously, the old adage that you make money on the buy in real estate is never going to be untrue right because what happens is that if you buy it right you can really profit from it Um, and where where are we going in the future right now instead of doing 100 to 200 unit deals I'm looking at smaller deals and it depends I said that but I'm actually underwriting right now a 224 unit deal I underwrote a 24 unit deal I underwrote a uh, 18 unit deal so it's it's evolving for me. What I'm seeing is that raising 10, $20 million in capital is not where my business is today. So I need to be appropriate to where my business is. Now, that being said, what I see is that we've got to all keep riding this wave. You know, I was talking to another guy yesterday, and his, his phrase was survive till 25. And I think the Fed, I was looking at Chatham's uh, 10-year Rate curve earlier this week, and they're forecasting that the Fed of funds rate will start to drop in Q2 of 24. And so his, my buddy survived to 25 logic was six months in arrears. But what I'm really doing is building the database right now, building the networks and building those relationships because opportunity, the market seized right now. However, the, in sees as probably a little bit of a hyperbole statement. The market has tremendously slowed. Right, right. But what I do know is that the market will break, and it will break open, and there's money to be made. Right now, I'm doing a couple of things. I'm looking at uh, an office conversion to condos. Uh, I'm doing some flip, simple flips in Cleveland, some Burr stuff. I'm looking at uh, some sober living homes which is a process near and dear to me. I've been affected by addiction in my family, like so many in the world have. And uh, I'm being patient. Patient capital wins.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: I'm not doing deals to generate
0: fees. Got it. That makes sense. That makes total sense. Now, which brings up the thing, right? You found an opportunity with office buildings. Now, I'm not sure what it's like over there, but um, a lot of, uh, you know, since this uh, COVID happened, A lot of work from home has been happening there's some hybrid uh movement going on Mm -hmm. i'm not sure whether or not people will ever go back to the office five days a week or not and to be honest it doesn't really matter but where i'm going with this is that as a result of what things have happened a lot of offices have shrunk a lot of companies have shrunk their space and there's a lot of availability out there which is causing some uh we'll say stress in the uh, commercial real estate end
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. Vacancies are, are way, way up. Occupancy way down in the, in the class A office building space and in major metros. You San Francisco in, in peril right now. New York's got some challenges in that. I just spent the weekend with a CEO of a pipeline uh, in, in, or the division head of a pipeline and his team is in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. He hates it. He wants them in there Monday through Friday. They're not going. The the they can't hire if they have five day a week in office, and so there's this friction going on. So the question comes back to what we said earlier: What's going to happen with the employee-employer relationship as the economy worsens? Does the the lever and the fulcrum change to the employer again? Don't I don't I don't pretend to know that answer. What I know is that. Office is situational. Some of it's very distressed. Some of it's not. Uh, suburban class B and class C office, a lot of demand for office suites like what I'm in right here, which is, you know, a thousand feet and two offices. And I can't find it. Yeah, I get that. Right. And then there's a the, the, the class A office. There's going to be some evolution in that. And there's definitely some financing. There, there's some financing tsunamis in front of us. We've got something like billion in loans coming due over the next 18 months for multifamily. And then uh, on top of that, another obscene number for office. I don't remember the number off the top of my head. And there's a lot of vacancy. So that is a risk. Now, I will say we had the same discussion in 2008. An office didn't falter. COVID wasn't there. And what COVID did do for us is it created electronic video conferencing to become the norm. I had a coffee date this morning that was by Zoom. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And there you go, right? Would not have happened three years ago.
0: Exactly. Look, before uh, COVID came up, a lot of my interviews were in person, which mm-hmm. created logistics uh, issues, right? Because trying to make everything work and <laughs> it's not like people are next door all the time. <laughs> right. 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 So now right. once uh, Zoom came in and other software came in, it's a lot less in person. Um, don't get me wrong. I like the in-person thing. I personally like the, the old traditional belly to belly. And I think that's kind of a better way. But there's certain things that are not possible doing it that way. Hard to interview yes. someone. And, we wouldn't
1: be having this dialogue. Yeah, well,
0: that's exactly where I was going, right. It'd be hard to do this, you know, when you're in Colorado and I'm in Toronto. So, mm-hmm. um, again, right. So there's opportunities that is created, but obviously it's, uh, you know, offset with uh, other challenges as well. So, right. yeah, again, it's about adapting. So about. I love that. Um, And and I agree with you, with the commercial, who knows what's gonna happen there. There will be some challenges, some financial risks, Um, but I think there's gonna be some opportunity. I think there might be, I mean, I'm not sure what it's like there,
1: but over here, we have a residential problem. We have- Oh, we have it across the globe. Okay, yeah, yeah, so it's not just me imagining. And in the US, we definitely have it. We have a supply problem. There is a shortage of supply. There is an excess of demand. And one of the challenges though, is that building codes for office to convert to residential, they're not the highest and best use often. Did you know that in the U.S., in order to change office to residential, you got to worry about the egress and the width of the stairwells. Forget the plumbing. The plumbing's a a significant issue, but you got to worry about the risk of the stairwell. And then if you're going to change the plumbing in the building, is the plumbing to the main line, to the city sewer, a 12-inch? An 18 inch, a six inch, the the there's so much structurally different. It's a real challenge, and I think that we're going to see a lot of buildings demolished and rebuilt.
0: Yeah, I could see that happening, right? And that's where I was going. I, I could see some commercial space being converted, whether through demolishing and rebuilding or something. I because I, I, I mean, at least here, they've, there there's been talk where government buildings that aren't being used, having them redeveloped. There's been talk to that mm-hmm. now. Whether that happens now or it's just people putting rumors out, I don't know. But it's not a terrible idea. We got 5,000 empty offices, buildings, or you know, and it's sitting there on taxpayers' dime. Why not convert it since we need the space anyways?
1: Yeah, and and what about creating some of this as shelters for the homeless or yeah. uh, senior facilities? You've got a baby. Bo- we've got a baby bo- baby boomer problem. You've got a shopping mall problem a big box retail problem. So the major retail market's changing. We've seen that time and again. Uh, The seniors are aging in place longer. So there's a whole lot that can be done with this. Am I the guy to do it? I don't have the solutions today. I have some ideas, but I don't have the uh, capital to write the checks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I get that I, I, again. Right. I mean, uh, Hey, I think we all contribute as we, uh, mm-hmm. as we get out there, like even with yourself, every building you buy, every opportunity you present, that is one slice of the pie towards the solution. Right. I don't think any one person can do it on their own. And I think uh, to get the massive amounts of movement in that space we're talking about, it's going to take uh, you know, the really big box stores like uh, like the government or the Blackstones of the world or JPMorgan's to do, right? So mm-hmm. it's going to be yeah. beyond the uh, you know beyond the uh, individual computer contributors. But again, every piece everybody contributes, it all helps out in my opinion.
1: It it does for sure.
0: So awesome. In light of time, I'm going to get down to the last couple of questions, and um, all right. one of them is going to be: What would your suggestion be or your advice be? For someone who is interested in getting in the real estate game, whether it's through investments, whether it's through being in the business, whichever, but they're not sure where to start, they're not sure where they should focus, what would you suggest?
1: Uh, The short answer is follow something that interests you. Follow something that interests you, get educated and get in the game. Action always educates better than sitting on the sidelines.
0: Love that one. I believe that too. There's only so much learning you can do if you don't put into action. Of no benefit to anyone. Mm-hmm. So second last question is going to be, how do you know you've had a successful day?
1: It's on my wall. My job is to help my investors and the way I help them is ensuring that I've given them all the information so that they can make the best decision for their families. If I have helped people get all the information they need to have a good deci- to make a good decision, regardless of what that decision is, That's a success for me.
0: Last but not least, where do people looking for you find you?
1: Macassets.com. M-A-C-assets. A-S-S-E-T-S.com. And I'm on LinkedIn. But uh, Macassets is the best. Or if you want to hear a podcast, I run one called Break Your Golden Handcuffs. And it's everywhere your podcasts are found.
0: That's awesome. David, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: it a pleasure. If you like what you saw and you want to see some more, subscribe to the link below.